Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk about the Lazy GM's resource document being available in Japanese. Bob Worldbuilder had an excellent video where he talked about his four combat house rules. I'm going to comment on those. The Ethereal Expanse setting guide by Ghostfire Gaming is now available on Kickstarter. We're going to have a long segment where we talk about chat GPT and RPG prep. How are GMs using chat GPT to help their games? What can it do? What is it bad at? And what hopes do we have for it in the future? And we're going to go through questions from our June 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a dedicated Discord server, the Patreon Q&A, video exclusives, and a whole lot more. It's a very good deal, and if you want to help me put on shows like this, please consider becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. You can find a link to that down in the show notes below. One of the things that patrons has, have helped me with, one of the great things about the patrons of Sly Flourish is it gives me room to work on things that don't have to have, to have direct commercial applicability. I can work on things that I can give to lots of people because I have the time and energy that is paid for by the money that come in from patrons of Sly Flourish. An example of that is the Lazy GM's resource document. The Lazy GM's resource document is a Creative Commons attribution release set of material from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's workbook, and the Lazy DM's companion. I've take, I took pieces of those that I feel are the most valuable to the overall community, particular other RPG publishers, to use however they want just with attribution. They can even use it for commercial work. They can build applications for it. They can put it into books. They can do whatever they want to do with this material because I want this material to be out in the open. I'm able to do that because I'm supported by by, by patrons. And one of the things that I, I, has come from this, and a, a, a question that I often receive is, hey, can we do translations of your books in, in a particular language? I would love to do that. Obviously, I would love to have my books available in every language on the planet. It's a really hard process, though. And having an agreeable publisher really isn't enough, because I don't know what the publisher does. I don't know how they do the translations. I don't know how the rights work and overseas. There's a lot of questions when it comes to producing books in other languages overseas. A lot of big issues with it. And I'm one guy running this whole thing and I just don't have time. I'm working on my next book. I'm working on all of this stuff. I'm doing videos like this. I don't really have time to dig into doing translations. I've talked to other bigger publishers who have the same problem. It's just doing that kind of translations and having control over it and having a good understanding of it is really hard. One of the things that the Lazy GM's resource document being in the Creative Commons helps with is now nobody needs to ask my permission to translate this. Anybody can translate this into any language they want. And they've done so because the Lazy GM's resource document is now available in Japanese. Here is the entire Lazy GM's resource document available in Japanese. They didn't ask for my permission. They don't need my permission. I think it's outstanding. So now... The work that I'm putting out is now available. If you want to translate it, you can translate it however you want. Anybody can translate it. So even if one person does kind of a translation where they use, you know, a lot of AI tools or whatever to do translation, but somebody else actually goes through the trouble of translating it by hand, both of those versions can be available and people can use them. So I think it's awesome. And this is exactly why I released the Lazy GM's resource document into the Creative Commons. I was really happy about this. But I particularly want to thank patrons who give me the support that I need in order to spend my time converting this, putting this out there, hosting it, and getting it out into the open. So I want to show that off. Again, I see something like this and it just makes my heart burst with joy because I'm very happy to see the material that I'm producing available to so many.
It's fantastic. So patrons, thank you very much. And for those of you going through the work to do things like this, we have a couple folks in our Discord server who are, who are doing it. Thank you so much for the work bringing this material to people who don't speak English. It's great. One of my favorite YouTube, D&D YouTubers is, YouTubers? That's probably not a great, that sounds weird. One of my favorite producers of YouTube videos on D&D is Bob Worldbuilder. He's an awesome producer. I love his stuff. He's a fan of my work. I'm a fan of his work. We got a lot, we got a lot going on. I always watch his videos. They're always fantastic. Really, really fun, really, really fun videos. And he just did a video recently on four house rules that his D&D players love. It's a really good video. I highly recommend checking it out. You can find the links down in the show notes below. I'm going to spoil a little bit and talk about his house rules. So Bob, sorry for talking about the house rules, but he had four that I thought were really good. One is he ignores movement speed. Now, I've been ignoring movement speed for a long time, too. I use either abstract maps or I use theater of the mind or anything like that. But basically, like, movement just doesn't matter that much. It's not really that important. Can you move up to the guy? Sure, you can move up to the guy. Like, focus on the big stuff. I really like that one. Two, this one I don't, I don't do. He ignores opportunity attacks, which in general slow down the game. If you want to move from one guy to another, just do it. I think it could be, in my experience, I haven't tried it, so I don't really know. But I feel like it'll end up being like a TIE fighter battle in Star Wars, where everybody's zipping all over the place all the time. That I think that kind of being stuck next to somebody, there's something there. I would, one thing that I do with this is I will often offer people a good opportunity to take an opportunity attack that in other words, like I try to push them towards accepting an opportunity attack in order to move. And I'll say like, it's not that bad. The damage isn't going to be that bad. And then I go, okay, I'm moving. I go, hi, crit. You take 96 damage. I try not to do that, but I, I, I certainly, I'll tell you this. My monsters take up, get opportunity, get attacks of opportunity on them all the time. I move my monsters a lot to provoke opportunity attacks because players love to take opportunity attacks. Why not have monsters accept more opportunity attacks to make your players enjoy the game more. So do it. You can certainly do this on the GM side very easily. Just have your monsters move a lot and take up and get and get opportunity attacks against them and then offer deals to the players to accept an opportunity attack. But I still like opportunity attacks. I still, I still think they're good. I'm not ready to throw them out yet. Reduce the power of monsters, lower their AC to make them easier to hit. That's not a bad one. I actually believe that you should run easy battles. I've, I've talked about running easy battles that you should run more easy battles than you run hard battles. Give players the opportunity to shine and really, then really look cool. It sounds like Bob actually makes monsters easier. He lowers their armor class. Maybe he lowers their hit points. Maybe he lowers their attacks. He had a lot of different ways that you can kind of make monsters a little less strong. I think instead, just run weaker monsters, right? And, and run battles where the, the, the monsters are, where the players have lots of opportunity to kill lots of monsters. I think that's really good. And then the next one is he's let critical hits carry over the damage to the next monster. So sort of the cleave, the cleave rule. Now I do this for hordes all the time. And again, if you're running easy monsters and maybe you're running a lot of easy monsters, that idea of pooling your monster hit points, I have videos and articles about how to pool monster hit points together. So essentially all your monsters are sharing a damage, a damage pool. Any damage done is sort of done to the whole group of monsters instead of just one, which means if they do enough damage to kill one monster, the rest of the damage carries over to the next. So I've, I've done the same sort of thing and that works really well. I think they're outstanding tips. I really like them. Check out Bob's video down in the notes below. Ghostfire Gaming, one of my favorite publishers. I have my, my friend, Sean Merwin, my friend, James Hake, both work over at Ghostfire Gaming. They have a new Kickstarter coming out for the Ethereal Expanse setting guide. It really feels like a, hey, Wizards of the Coast screwed up Spelljammer. We're going to do it right. And that's perfectly fine with me. I think having a source book, and it, this is the good one, it is a setting guide. It is a real setting guide where the Spelljammer box set does not have a Spelljammer setting. It has a Spelljammer monster book, a Spelljammer adventure guide, and a Spelljammer player's guide. It does not have a setting book. 
this isn't going to be like one for one with Spelljammer. It's really its own world, but it's definitely along the same themes as you can see in a book like that. I backed it. I think it's going to be cool. I got the physical version of the book and it looks really good. Everything that I've gotten from Ghostfire has been top-notch material. It's really, really outstanding stuff. I really like it. My only complaint is there's no sample. I would really love to see a sample chapter, but I've seen enough work from Ghostfire games that I know it's going to be good. Monster, you know, all, the, all different kinds of stuff it's got in there. The lore is what I'm really focused on. Character options, sure. Naval rules, I know a lot of people really wanted ship combat rules. Looks like they're going to answer that question here. I didn't really need them. I'm, I'm good, but I know a lot of people wanted them. New magic and new monsters all, all piled into this book. My, my big hope is that there's lots on lore. I've really, something that's changed with me over the years is now I really love setting books. I wish there were more setting books. I wish that, I you know, to me, like a setting, I, I need it more than I need mechanics. I just, I don't feel like I need a lot of new mechanics. I have so many subclasses. I have so many monsters. I have so many magic items. I can easily create my own magic items. I know, you know, monsters, I, I just, I'm, I'm right at the tail end of writing a book about how we can build our own monsters in like five minutes. So I don't need a lot when it comes to mechanic-y, mechanic-y crunchy bits. Also, as we're going into all of these new versions of 5e that are coming out and all of them are having their own take on 5e, I always worry about, well, which version of 5e is this book like? to be compatible with theoretically it could be compatible with any of them we'll see but i know a setting book is far more compatible settings like plain geo which talk you talk about the 5e mechanics and how they can be used for this but it's still primarily a setting book that's the kind of stuff i want settings and tools for running those settings and it's not just lore it's not just like a novel i want tools random tables encounters maps art. I want all this stuff to help me run in that setting. What I don't need is a lot of specific 5e mechanical crunchy bits. So I'm hoping that this book leans more towards the lore and it's fine. Like I know that a lot of times the, the mechanical crunchy bits are why people buy the book. So I know that they are there, but I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. I'm really excited for it. Can't, can't wait to see it. So check out the Kickstarter page, see if it's for you and you can pick it up, pick it up there. And I am, I am sure it's going to be a high quality book. Chat GPT. We are, we're living in a really interesting time when it comes to technology. ChatGPT in particular is one that in the world of D&D has eaten up a lot of conversations. Many of the different Discord servers that I hang out on, including my own, the Sly Flourish Discord server, which you can join by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish, has a dedicated sort of ChatGPT or AI-based forum where people talk about how they're using these things to run their games. I'm going to give a disclaimer, which is I'm not going to talk about some of the larger society or moral issues that are going on with AI. I've talked about it a little bit in previous shows. It's really not my place to make a decision about whether you feel that these tools are good or bad for society or anything like that. I will say that there are certain ways that these tools could be used that could be very, very bad and very bad for us, very bad for publishers and producers, very bad for artists and and very bad for everybody that's using them. And then there are ways that I feel like, yeah, that doesn't seem so bad, but they could still have an impact that we're not seeing. So A, I reserve my right to change my mind. That's one thing I'm going to say, that we are looking at this technology right now as what's going on. And B, there definitely could be major issues that are going on with society and how these things are growing and what they're doing, how they're displacing jobs, how they're changing the economy. Maybe they're good. Maybe they're bad. We don't know yet. So I'm not going to be talking about those topics. Instead, I'm going to be focusing on talking about ChatGPT in the world of prep for RPGs. So not publishing products that are getting sold, not in larger issues, but specifically towards GMs, you and me using these things to prep their games. One of the big questions I had was like, well, how people, how are people using it? Because I've been using it. I've been using it a lot. I've been using it for lots of 
of different things. I found it to be really interesting and good for some things. I found it to be really terrible at other things. I found things that I was like, wow, it's really good at this. And I realized, oh, wait, I, I already can do that with other things, right? So there's definitely been different sort of ways that I've been looking at it. And I still don't know that we really understand it. I don't understand. I know I can speak for myself. I know that I don't really understand it. I really don't know how it works well, how it works poorly, how we can tell the difference and what other things we could be using instead. There's all these sort of questions that I've got about it. I'm spending a lot of time with it to try to understand. There are definitely things where I use it. I'm like, oh, that was definitely valuable. So what I did is I said, okay, let me go out on YouTube and I'll put up a post and I'll say, how are you using it? And there is a post with a bunch of responses. I'm, I'm linking to that in the show notes below. 73 people came back and talk about how they've gotten use from ChatGPT, what specific ways that they've used it. They came up with some really interesting ones. One person here talks about a thing called private GPT. I actually tried it. It's an open source version of ChatGPT that you can download to your local machine. So it's not reaching out to some crazy system and sharing all your information, but you can use it on local stuff. I tried it out. It worked okay. There's parts of it that I think could be really useful, but didn't quite work yet. But we're really early in this technology. I think we're going to see some things. I hope we're going to see some things that could be really cool. Things that aren't necessarily part of, you know, supporting some major and shitified company, but instead are focused on helping us do some really interesting things. So lots of responses. I would recommend if you're interested in this, take a look at the responses. But one of the things I did, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a busy guy, I pasted it in ChatGPT and I said, hey, tell me what you found. And, and it said, based on the comments, here are 10 common ways people are using ChatGPT for role-playing games. One, they're generating character descriptions, backstories, and names. Two, creating dialogue for NPCs and cultures. Three, generating descriptions for environments, scenes, and settings. Four, designing quests, plot lines, and story arcs. Five, developing ideas for magic items, artifacts, and treasure. Six, creating handouts, letter, and documents for players. Seven, brainstorming and generating ideas for NPCs, organizations, and factions. Eight, creating random tables for scenario generation and encounter design. Nine, assisting with rules lookup and providing information from rule books. And ten, using it as a tool for inspiration, brainstorming, and collaboration and creative collaboration. So I thought those were very interesting. And I have, I have used these and tried many of these things. One big question that I have, and I think get into some of these here, is where is it actually better than a random generator? So for example, I have been working on a Lazy GM's random generator for a while now. This is available to patrons of SciFlourish. They get access to it. They get access to all the updates. And I regularly use it myself and I update it myself for my own games and then make it available to others. But I have a bunch of different things that you can generate. You can generate a monument. So you have like an ethereal obsidian obelisk or a, a glyphed ancient mosaic, a cyclopean fairy gravestone, a, a, a ruined bladed geode right? Those are like monuments, things that you would find in the middle of a location. But then I can also add in things like Midgard. And I can say an astral unearthed pool of the goat of the woods, queen of decadence, or a crumbling floating sigil of Valoon, the, cro the crossroad master of fire and the anvil. So I can tie in lore from specific things. One of the ones I added yesterday, because I've been playing a lot of Diablo, was a Diablo-style dungeon, a wraith-touched workshop of Typhon, and, and again, it's Midgard-flavored, the spectral armory of Holda, the elven goddess of hearth and seasons, the nightmare-ridden observatory of Bethal, the exiled lord, right? That's really cool. This is just random generator. It's just a list of stuff mixed with another list of stuff mixed with another list of stuff. There's no AI in here. I paste a bunch of things in there, and it, and it generates them. So the question is like, is the stuff that's coming out of ChatGPT better than that? Why don't we try it? So here we have ChatGPT4, and I'm going to say, give me 10 Diablo-style dungeons that are flavored with the gods of Kobold Press's 
Midgard setting. Right, and it it comes up with the one the, the the carnal crypt of Marina, a haunting, and so it actually gives like a little bit like haunting undead crypt filled crypt located deep within a winter forest filled with traps and puzzles to test intruders. The blood furnace of Chernabog, the temple of time of Rava, the labyrinth of Velus. These are pretty good, right? This isn't a this isn't a bad way to go. And unlike mine, it actually has some kind of more descriptions about what's going on there. I look at this and is it better? Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. Is it, how much better is it? I, I don't know that it's completely blowing my socks off. One of the things that I think it might be doing a better job at is making sure that they make sense. So just looking at these, again, I'm running these right as we're talking. I've never run these before. I didn't even run this prompt before. The Storm Shroud Spire of Perun, a towering storm rack spire situated in a floating island is home to various air elementals. Adventures must withstand the challenges. I don't know that Perun is an air elemental god. I'm, I'm not sure. So... Not bad, right? It, it kind of comes up with it. But is it really better than a lazy than, than the random generator? I don't know. It's certainly it's not it's not terrible. One of the things that's interesting about how ChatGPT does what it does, though, is an, an argument about like what ChatGPT is, if you kind of if you kind of nail it down, is that it's a fancy version of autocorrect. We're oversimplifying. I know. If you're an AI PhD, don't yell at me. But like, it's kind of like the way that autocorrect works. It's keeping track of the words that were said before and asking itself the probability of what words comes next. And it's kind of extending that out over long words and sentences and even paragraphs and stuff like that. So the way that that works is it's looking for the probabilities of both. It's doing a little bit of stochastic stuff where it rolls and sometimes it picks stuff that isn't necessarily the most common, but it's definitely working on like a bell curve, which means that... When you generally ask it for stuff, it's often going to come back with general answers. And it's often going to come up with answers that are relatively common. Where a random generator, particularly like the random generator I was just using here, it's flat. The curve is flat. Like the Wraith Touch Workshop is just as likely as Spectral Armory of Holda. That it's, it's you know, I, you can weight it in, in perchance. You can say like this option is more likely than another option to take place. But I don't. I don't for a lot of those, which means you're going to come up with wilder, more wacky stuff from a random generator, some of which may just simply not work at all. It just doesn't make sense. Many of these, I'm sure, don't make sense. But then sometimes it's that outer edge of the bell curve. It's the stuff that isn't at the very end of it that just doesn't make sense at either way. But just inside, we're like, wow, that's wacky enough that I can make it work where the most common one isn't. An example of something that where ChatGPT didn't do that particularly a good job is I asked it to run a D&D game for me. It was kind of neat. It, it would answer questions and stuff like that. But I told it I was on the planet of Tarasks, right? I, I'm a 20th level fighter that's fighting for survival on the planet of Tarasks. And it kept throwing like rats at me and giant spiders and goblins and common D&D monsters. And I was like, you don't understand. I'm in this high fantasy place. And maybe my prompts weren't right, but I felt like it went to the most common stuff because that's how it understands the world. It's, it's not trying to give you wild, wacky answers or else every answer would be completely bananas. Instead, it's trying to give you stuff that it thinks makes sense, which in some sense means it's boring. So... That to me is a, a big question. And when you look at things like generating character descriptions, backstories, and names, the question is, is it really offering an advantage in those things over just regular random tools? And maybe it's okay if it doesn't like it, you know, right now, because it hasn't been completely enshittified yet, it's free. So we can try it out. I'm actually paying for the, the ChatGPT4 version. So it's not free to me right now. 
because I'm experimenting with it, doing a lot of stuff and I want more prompts and yada, yada, yada. But, but we know that this is going to get kind of brought into other tools. Now, my hope is that the technology of it, the idea of LLMs and many of the LLM models are free and open source. So I'm hoping that we will see more free open source dedicated tools that we can use to kind of focus on the, the things that we want. One of these I found that is really useful and that's the handouts and letters and documents for players. One of the things where like, you're not going to get a random generator to be able to do this for you. And you're also not likely to want to do it on your own is an example of like, write an epic poem. So you could actually say like, hey, the characters are exploring this tomb and I want to put on the tomb wall, a poem about this particular God. Here are some things about the God. Give me a four stanza poem. And it will come back with a poem that's probably pretty good. You may want to edit it a little bit. You want to probably want to make sure it's okay. But I bet you it's better than you could sit down there and noodle through. Now, in some cases, you might want to noodle through your own epic poem. An example is like you could also have it write a letter between villains, one villain to another. That's actually intelligence that the characters are going to pick up. That's going to help them in their game. And you might be tempted to say, well, I'll let ChatGPT write the letter. But in that case, because writing the letter might actually be good game prep for you, it might be better for you to actually write the letter. But like, I'm not a poet. I can't write a poet. One, one time we had a situation we had in my last Scarlet Citadel game is they were facing these creatures called the Fate Eaters. And the Fate Eaters were like these worm-like creatures that love to like drain, suck the the memories out of your brain and listen to your dreams and hear your psychic calls. And one of the players said, wouldn't it be funny? She, I, I think she put up a prompt that was, give me a song sung by the fate eaters, these worm-like creatures that devour the memories of creatures in our D&D game, but sung to the tune of every breath you take by Sting. And she pasted in a chat and it was hysterical. And I said, they all throughout the night while you guys are sleeping, you hear that song in your mind, the song of the fate eaters. And it was this really hysterical song. You can't just whip that thing up in your prep. So there's areas where a tool like ChatGPT can make something for you that you just can't make with anything else. That idea of songs, poems, you know, it, letters that aren't really that important. If you just want to put it like a little bit of lore, two or three sentences about something that you want to generate, and you don't really want to spend the time to do it yourself, it's maybe not that important that it's exactly right, but it might be something fun to do. I think ChatGPT is perfect for that. So th those are a couple things that have been kind of on my mind about, about ChatGPT. Is it better than a random table? Where, where does it really serve? So what are the things that it's, it's really bad at? It's really bad at facts. It's really bad with math. One of the things I've been shocked by is how bad it is at math. Now, there are plugins for it. One of the plugins is Wolfram Alpha. So now if you ask it some mathematical questions, it will actually paste it to a different service, which then responds with actual mathematical answers. But we don't have to usually do a lot of math in our ChatGPT program when it comes to RPG prep. So that's not really a big deal. But there might be circumstances where you ask for facts about a game world or you ask for facts about some kind of lore or that somebody brought up, I think one of the things here is looking up rules. I'm not convinced that you wouldn't want to go look up the rule yourself anyway. One of the problems with ChatGPT is when you're asking it about facts, and these could be even be fictional facts, is it's only helpful if you really don't care if it's right. If it's wrong and you needed it to be right, then you can't check it right? Or, or you're going to have to go check it. And if you're going to have to check it, why did you even ask it in the first place? So one of the things is like, if I'm asking it for truth, you know, for things about Midgard, maybe it's right. So, so an example, we'll go back to my, we'll go back to our thing here and I'll say, give me the name of the gods of the Southlands in Kobold Press's Midgard setting. Right. So, and it gives up the whole disclaimer. Hey, what would I know about the thing? And it gives me these gods. Yeah. Aten, Anu Akma, Thoth Hermes, 
Bestat, Horus, Isis, Nikishi, Ptah, Set, right? So it gave me nine. I know there are more than nine. And if I actually pull up the Southlands guidebook, I will find more than nine. Now, of course, it only knows what it knows and it doesn't know what it doesn't know. But my point is like, maybe that's enough. And maybe I can look through that. If I didn't need to have a complete perfect list of the gods, maybe that's enough. Now, something else is like, I've seen when I've asked it for things like, give me the gods of the North in the Midgard setting. It starts to throw a bunch of Norse gods in there, which is correct because the Norse gods are in Midgard. But then it starts adding other Norse gods that aren't in Midgard. And maybe that still works out and it doesn't matter and I can still use it, but it's not exactly factually correct. So that question of like, if you need it to be right, you're in trouble. If you don't care if it's right, you don't mind that it misses something or it adds something you didn't really miss, then it's probably fine. If you're hanging on with a loose grip, like if I want to have just these gods of the Southlands, it's good. But what about give me 10 evil gods of Midgard's Southlands D&D setting, right? And, you know, here, I think it's going to, it might start making some up. Let's find out. So it has set Apep, the world serpent, Nebtheth. I, I haven't never seen Nebtheth, right? Sekhmet, Mistress of Dread. It's kind of cool, war and disease. So in this case, like, it's getting close to starting to make stuff up. And maybe this is enough that I can grab one of these and go and I don't really care. It's about how much do I mind diverging from what the actual Southlands book says. Now, this is another example of like, wow, this is really neat that it's able to know all this stuff. You know what else knows this stuff? The PDF of Southlands. I can't just go into the Southlands book. Why don't we do that for funsies? You know, I can't go into the Southlands book itself. I can go down to the gods of the Southlands and I can go look them up myself right? I can see all of the gods. I've got pictures of the gods. I've got their domains. I've got all this stuff. So is it really helping me that much if I can just read it or search on the PDF itself? I don't know. And honestly, like I've, 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 some of the things I'm talking about right now, I've actually experimented with. And the answer was, it's actually just easier for me to use the PDF in a lot of circumstances. I sort of wasted my time trying to under get chat GPT to understand the exact questions I was asking for when really I could have just spent the time on a couch with some music and read the PDF and written some notes down. So it's interesting about like, where is it going to be useful? And, it, and it's bad at facts. Now there is one area where I think like it could really be cool. And I've experimented with this a little bit. And that is when you can get it to read PDFs for you. And this is one where I think like a local tool would be better at this. And the idea that like, if you put a PDF into a language model like this and it can read it, it could then sit there as sort of a co-GM with you and answer questions about the setting for you. You know, that, that could be really, that could be really kind of cool. I uploaded Ruins of the Grendel Root, my, my book of adventures, and I fed it to a plugin for ChatGPT called AI PDF. And the idea here is you can tell it, hey, here's a PDF, I want you to read it. And then use the rest of the language model that you understand in order to answer questions from this specific PDF. So I gave it Ruins of the Grendel Root and, I, and it gave me you know, a summary of the book and told me what was there. And I said stuff like, what's the seventh adventure in the book about? And it said, the seventh adventure is Children of the Red Rose. So it said, oh yeah, the seventh adventure is Children of the Red Rose. Wrong, it's actually the ninth chapter, the, the ninth adventure in the book. So again, bad at facts. But it did describe the Children of the Red Rose pretty correctly. When it, when it asked about what that adventure is about, it had it good. And I said, give me five bullet points in the history of the Cavern of Deep Delver's Enclave. And it gave me 
history of Deep Delver's Enclave itself. But still, these were these were correct. And then I said, what about the cavern around the Enclave? What happened there? And that's where it started getting into general history, but it responded with the general history. And then I said, like, okay, well, who runs Shadowreach? Because it mentioned the city of Shadowreach establishment. And it said, Shadowreach is ruled by a cabal of nine powerful wizards and the archmages. And here are, you know, here's the history. And then, so it actually knew and understood. Now, this is pretty early. I think as this stuff gets better, it's going to be really good. And that idea of like, you can take a large language model, you can feed it a PDF, and then you can ask it natural language questions to get natural language responses. If that works well, I think that that could be a real killer app for this. I think that that's something that I would definitely love. I would love to be able to take a source book, read it, kind of get my own piece, but then feed it in a model and then have this thing I could ask questions to and get responses back from is might be easier than just picking up the book and reading it. But again, you always have that question is, am I better just looking it up in the book? You know, that's a good, that's a good question. But I think that that could be really something pretty neat. So what do we, you know, what is this thing? There was an article recently about somebody, a, a doctor who started using chat GPT in order to have better conversations, more human conversations with patients and with the families of patients who were very stressed out and having things going. And he would put in like his diagnosis into chat GPT. He would tell it how he wanted it to respond to the patient. And then it would come up with the output. He would then read it and, and try to get the other things and then talk to them using it sort of as a script to talk to patients. And he said, and it did a really good job at that. It gave him ideas about how to better communicate communicate to people that are under these big stressful things and he was typically thinking about but he said when it came to like the discussions of the details of what was going on it was about as trustworthy as a hungover intern that you're a hungover resident in his case that like the idea was it's you know it's it's not giving great facts and that idea of like treat it like a high schooler no no offense to our, our our high school listeners here but like when it comes to like how much accuracy how much faith you want to give it you know, treat it as though you handed a copy of the of, of Runes of the Grendel Root to a high schooler and they read it and then you're going to ask questions to them about it. That's about how good the accuracy is going to be on the other side. If that's enough and that works for you, then maybe that's enough and it's and it's worthwhile. But if you're looking for a level of depth that you don't have, then maybe it's not really a tool. So I think we are still at the very early stages of understanding exactly what these large language models and, and tools like ChatGPT can do for RPG prep. We're all experimenting with them. In many cases, we're seeing things that are really pretty wild, like the, the fact that it's able to talk to us in natural language is really good, but it's really more of a parrot than it is actual AI. It's not actually learning because it's already trained on its model. You know, it's it's not really doing the things we think. It does, it's not a thinking machine. It's not sentient. It's basically has a nice way of taking essentially the kinds of things you find in search and wrapping them up in text that sounds like a human being is picking it up. So it's it's pretty interesting. It's interesting stuff. I'm still using it a lot. I'll tell you. So a couple of things that it's been helping me with that I like is there's a plugin where I can feed it a YouTube video and will it will give me a summary of what that YouTube video was about. I like that. Now, it might skip over some of the interesting parts. Like I had it do a summary of a video that the Wizards of the Coast team had put out and it summarized the video correctly, but it missed one of the most interesting things that was actually in that video, the thing that we actually all wanted to talk about. It didn't pick up on that because it doesn't know that that was interesting. It's like, hey, this is a summary. So if you really don't care and you're not that particular about wanting to know every interesting thing that was in a video, but you're like, hey, what what is that video about? You can feed that video in and it, it will tell you what the video was about. I really think that 
that that is a powerful tool. That's in many cases, if it's like a 30 minute video, but I really don't want to watch 30 minutes. It's way easier for me to pass a video to this. It reads the closed caption summary and it picks it up. I think the PDF plugin could also be really cool. I would really love to have like, there's sometimes where people are a little bit wordy on their blogs. I don't know. I'm, I'm not typically wordy, but some people are. And I would just want to just tell me what this is about. Tell me what the five main points are. And if I'm not going to read the article anyway, I might as well at least get that. If it's, if it's something where I would be better reading the article or I don't want to miss anything, well, then I better just read the article. But in many cases, if I'm just surfing through something, a 150 word summary of a 3000 word blog article may be a better way for me to go. It's better than not reading at all in some circumstances. So I'll be very interested to see like how this thing gets sort of wired into the tools that we use. Cause right, right now, like on my phone, if I'm reading an article on Feedly, I would love to have like one button that just says summarize this for me. And it could just summarize what's already there. Instead, I have to do a bunch of copying and pasting and stuff like that. There's a bunch of like mechanics that are going on with this that I have to screw around with in order to get it to work right. Where I think like once they streamline some of that, it's going to be pretty amazing. So I'm, I'm bullish on it. It's pretty interesting. I think that the, the questions are like for DMs, is it really better than a random generator or is it really better than just reading the PDF? I think in some circumstances, it certainly is. If it's saving you time, it's saving you time. If it's not, then always ask yourself, like, am I better just reading the original material? Know that you can't trust it, right? You can't trust the output. If you're asking a rules question, that doesn't mean it's correct. You know, and, and if you don't mind like the summarization that it does, if you don't mind it missing things, it's probably just fine. So that is my thoughts on ChatGPT and how it works with RPG prep. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we have a monthly Q&A. In this, I, I post a new post, and in this thread, anybody can ask any RPG-related question. I answer every question that's there every Friday morning, and then some of those questions I bring to the show here, or I do a separate article or a separate video from them. So let's dive right in. So Spike H says, how do you make a location feel dangerous without running tons of hard battles and traps? I have a single word answer to this, and that word is flavor. I'm, I put this question here because this is, gets to be my opportunity to bang on my drum about flavor. Not everything needs to have mechanics. Not everything needs to have a mechanical effect. I think we feel like that is the case, that if a monster has a special ability, if, if a monster needs to feel a certain way, we have to make a mechanic that lets that mechanic show how it does what it does. You can actually do a whole lot with just describing things differently. So when the characters go into a dungeon that is really dangerous, you can explain to them why it's dangerous, how it feels dangerous. You can just, you know, the way you change things. And again, like reading good fiction, read horror fiction, Stephen King stuff. Like Stephen King makes a lot of really silly things sound really horrible. And he does a fantastic job at it. Like I think I was reading a book recently where he had like an undead white riding on a little train and it was scary as hell, right? A little tiny choo-choo train like you have at the mall. And it was freaking, it was, it was freaky. So flavor, describe with flavor. If you want to have mechanics to it, you can add something like the stress effects rules that I have in the lazy DMs companion, where when they see something, they witness something like a, even if it's like there's a throne and there's a dead body on the throne, but then the body, the head comes up and it looks at you with baleful red eyes roll a stress check and you roll the check in as DC 17 and you're like, oh, I failed it. And it's like blood starts dripping from your eyes as you're stunned by seeing this horror, right? It's a skeleton in a chair, right? Like how many times that happened in D and D, but you can do things like that, but just 
flavor. Flavor is a way to make all this stuff work out. Describe things, work on your descriptions of stuff, you know, dive into them, know about the things that are going to make it feel dangerous to them. Tell them about, you know, we don't want to, you, you don't want to say what characters do or what they think, but you can talk about how they feel because how characters feel is not something they can necessarily control, which means it kind of comes into the realm of the GM. The hair on the ne- back of your neck is standing up. You step into this chamber and realize nobody has stepped foot in this chamber for a thousand years you look at the floor and you see shattered skulls all around and know that many have come before you and not made it out of here alive right like that's how you make something sound dangerous a skeleton rises up and attacks you with a scimitar right you don't need to not everything needs to be mechanic so that's how you do it without running tons of hard battles and traps is narrative and flavor and and that sort of thing Julie R. says, I recently ran a very intense scene between a PC and his estranged daughter. It was some of the best role-playing I've ever done in my life, but afterwards I was very emotionally drained. Have you ever dealt with emotional bleed as a DM? How do you deal with it and prevent it from happening in the first place? So yeah, that's a, it's a big topic. I've definitely had big emotional scenes between characters where afterwards I, you know, I had to, I had to kind of like step back and say, I, I, I need to think about this, right? I need to think about how I feel. I was talking with one of the players in my game whose character had a big shift. His character basically like, you know, was a very happy go lucky character that came to the realization that if he didn't take in a darkness in order to be able to accomplish this, that they were going to lose. And he did. And like major parts of his character changed. And like, I was heartbroken by some of the stuff that happened. Like I was really like emotional about it. And, you know, and so, you know, this is something like you need to check in, right? And you need to check in with yourself. You need to check in with your players. And this is something where I think like the RPG safety toolkit can really help. So the RPG safety toolkit, you can find a link down in the show notes below. An excellent guide that has all different kinds of tools for RPG safety. Like, and it's got things like X card. It's got things like lines and veils. It's got, you know, a whole bunch of different stuff, but it definitely has sections on like, you know, uh, bleed, you know, emotions and stress from the game can bleed over into post-game life, can affect the enjoyment of the game. Being open and honest, it's got a lot of good descriptions about what you can do here. Aftercare, talking to people, checking in with them. Hey, I know that was a really emotional scene that we had. How do you feel about it? Having a conversation about it, right? The the debriefing, like ta- talking, saying, woo, woo, that was that was crazy. Like, man, you know, have you felt that way? And I've definitely, I've talked to players, I've talked to other GMs, myself, that, you know, this happens. So, you know, it's really good. So I would, I would definitely take a look at the RPG safety toolkit. It's got lots of references for this kind of thing. You can click on some of those links and read some of those other documents. I think it's got really good advice for how to handle it. So that's definitely what I would, what I would do. You can find a link to the RPG safety toolkit down in the show notes below. I want to thank them, by the way, the creators of the RPG Safety Toolkit and of many of the safety tools gave me permission to include parts of their stuff in my Lazy GM's resource document. So there's a safety tools section of the Lazy GM resource document that has stuff about safety tools where I talk about them. I asked all of them for permission to put that stuff in there and they all said, yes, you can put that in there. So thanks to them for for doing that. Dan M says, what are your thoughts on the ideas of hybrid Grand March campaign? For instance, I'm currently running a campaign where the party started in Suzale and their patron gave them three options based on the storylines that created one job would have taken them to the keep on the borderlands one to the ghost of salt marsh and the other to the cult of the reptile god they chose the story to led to the cult they 
have no idea that these are adventures we're running, but they're loving it. I've run adventures where I've told them up front they're playing Out of the Abyss or Horde of the Dragon Queen and it was fun, but there was an element of expectation built into each player. I love them for not knowing exactly what is happening, letting the story unfurl organically. I've always made sure that during a session zero they have a clear sense of the area and atmosphere around the story and that they are appropriately outfitted to suit the conditions. I was wondering if you have ever run a campaign like this or if you always told them we're running X, Y, and Z. I definitely tend to lean towards the, uh, we're going to run Scarlet Citadel or we're going to run Empire of the Ghouls. Not because I think that's superior in any way to the other one. My friend Jeff Greiner, one of my one of my friends and partners that we do behind the DM screen, he loves this style of game where he has three or four different adventures and the players through their actions and through their drives and motivations go from one to the other. I could do that. I would worry that for me, it's a lot of work. Like I'd have to understand enough of each of those campaigns to know what happens when they head in that direction or how to mix them up. And, and for me, I kind of like to have the focus of one adventure. I think it definitely is cool. Jeff swears by it and likes it a lot. And if you like it, you know, I don't think, right. There, this is one of those areas where I don't think there's like a right or, or wrong answer. I think that there are different styles of games that people enjoy. I think that there's probably a lot of value you're getting by where I, you know, I've been talking a lot recently about the idea that running homebrew adventures in published settings has a distinct advantage of the flexibility of a homebrew adventure with all the extra material and work that's gone into a setting. I think this offers that same kind of advantage that if you're taking a bunch of published adventures, harvesting them for stuff to build your own adventure out of them, you're getting that same kind of value that you'd be getting by running into a a, a setting. So I think that's a great way to go. And I probably ought to try it. I just, I just don't. I guess I just play kind of the way I play. PhD20 says, what are new game masters not thinking about enough? Bonus, what are more experienced game masters not thinking about enough? I don't know, but I'm going to offer a hypothesis. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a thought that maybe they aren't doing. And this is based on some evidence. I, I talked previously about the Reddit and the, the whole issues that are going on with Reddit recently, but on the DM Academy over on Reddit, I have seen many, many new DMs talk about their experience and what they're doing, what's going on there. And I think this is, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to argue that I think this is also something that experienced DMs. So I think I'm going to say it's the same thing. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say that both new game masters and experienced game masters aren't thinking about the same thing, which is getting down to the basics of the game, just focusing on the basics of the game as though you pulled it out of the closet and opened it up and sat down with your friends to go play hungry, hungry hippos that you are just, you know, we get so caught up in the zeitgeist. I am so wrapped up in the zeitgeist of this hobby. We talk about the 2024 D&D books. We talk about Kickstarters. We talk about videos and things that are going on. We read all this stuff and we're so caught up in all this stuff that we forget that what the game really is, which is like us sitting at the table with our friends, rolling dice, laughing and having fun and talking about crazy adventures that our characters go on. And I think new, I've seen it a lot with new DMs that when they say like, hey, I want to play D&D, what do I do? And you're like, go buy the starter set. And they're like, well, I have this big idea for this big world that they get so involved with their own big ideas. It's one of the few times in our lives where adults or even young adults have open creativity that they can use for something. Right, we all have brilliant minds, world simulators in our skulls. We can design worlds, and we—they do many cases. And some of us that are fantasy-driven are really like we want it. We have these worlds in our head that we want to explore and we want to do stuff with. And now we have an avenue to use it, and we want to bring it to our players. But we can let that world be so big and so vast and so, you know, so huge that we we have trouble figuring out. Hey, my friend just wants to watch his character hit his skeleton in the face with a sword. 
right? And we lose track of just the focus of that game. So I think I don't want to I don't want to limit that creativity, right? I don't want people like we do have these world simulators in our heads, but that idea of using the world simulator to fill out a world that matters to you and your players at the table instead of using it earlier to build these vast empires that are never going to see the light of day. I think there's a lot that goes on there. So I would say both new game masters and experienced game masters forget about the basics of the game. Forget about just, you know, it's it's you're 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 going along with a caravan and it gets attacked by a bunch of goblins or you're walking down the road and you see that there's a cave on the side of a hill and you hear a voice that whispers that's in the in the thing right get back to the basics of the game particularly use the starter sets like run the adventures from the starter sets if you're an experienced gm and you haven't go pick up dragon of stormwreck isle and run it for some friends you're gonna have a great time Right, it's a really fun adventure. It's got a lot that's really going on there. But don't forget about the basics of the game. So that that would be my that would be. There's probably lots of things. I don't even know if that's correct. What do I think? New game masters are not thinking enough about, or that experienced game masters aren't thinking about. I I don't think we're thinking about the basics enough. I think we forget. We get so caught up in the hobby or so caught up in our own imaginations that we forget about what the game really is and what we can do to just have a fun time for our game. Which is why. I promote like the eight steps from return of the lazy dungeon master and everything is focus on those things. Focus on the characters, focus on your start, focus on some secrets and clues, some locations, monsters, yada, yada, yada. Tell your game. Tim K says, one of the things I like about the Candelabra Obscura preview is how the adventure has a theme that resonates with ethical dilemmas of the modern world. In this case, exploitive capitalism. I would, re- it would This would really grab my group's interest. Do you have any tips or, or tables for coming up with such hooks and goals for adventures? So I'm going to go back to Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing. A fantastic book, and I would highly recommend it for anybody it's a it's a really fun read but it also gets into like his thoughts and processes about the the kind of books that he writes and what he's learned from it and one of the things he brings up is that a lot of time the theme doesn't come out till the second or third draft of a book that you know he talks about he says like i bet you even animal farm or 1984 weren't necessarily written with the understanding of the kind of thing that they were talking about till after it was written. He brings up that even George Orwell might not have had an idea that he was talking about the corruption of communism when he wrote Animal Farm or or 1984 that he might have just had stories and he was influenced by what was going on at the turn at that turn and that that drove those stories to to become what they became he says he's not really sure he says those might be like the only ones george orwell can get away with starting with a theme but none of us can and he brings up themes that were in the books that he wrote where he just wrote the book and then later went on and reinforced that now we don't have the option when we're running our game of adding theme after the fact but we may not want to start with a theme when we're starting to think about our game itself our game itself you know, if we're being influenced by stuff going on in the real world, it's probably going to end up in our game anyway. And instead of kind of forcing that to be the theme of the game, let that happen organically. Let that just just run, run, focus on running a good game. And the themes that are going on are probably going to find their way into the game itself. So I that that's probably how I would do it. I don't know, like maybe in your you know, maybe in your one line campaign summary, your your campaign elevator pitch, you have an idea of, of a theme like that and you can sort of work it in there. But I, I don't you can be too strong hanging onto the theme first before you've actually just gotten involved in what the game is going to be about. So I would I would be a little cautious about putting the theme in too early and instead let the theme happen organically while you're telling the game and focus on the game itself being a fun game. That's that's my thought with that one. 
Mark M says, in a recent episode, you mentioned the difficulty of combining different non-WOTC classes and subclasses, specifically those from A5E. What specific compatibility issues do you know of? And is there a guide tutorial on how to convert things? I'm planning on running Drakenheim using A5E later this year, and a friend really wants to use a specific rogue subclass from Cobalt Press. It looks like it should work out of the box since it gives new features at the same levels. There is no guide, as far as I know, and we certainly don't know how all of these different systems are going to play together until they're actually all out. I think it'll probably be a year. I don't know if there's material that Level Up Advanced 5e has put out on how to convert subclasses. I haven't seen anything. But if it's working out of the box, I think you're going to end up having to tune and tailor things yourself anyway. I don't think that there's going to be a good, solid, easy, general-use converter for things like that. But if you look at a subclass and you say, yeah, this all looks like it makes sense, then you can, then you can just plop it right in and off it works. So if you look at it and it works, that's great. One thing I would do is, and I've started doing this in my own games, is when I've been including a lot of other fifth edition publishers and Wizards of the Coast and the material from those in my games is I say, hey, I don't know where this stuff is necessarily going to lead. So if we run into a weird combination of something that doesn't seem to be playing quite right, then I would like to work with you on making sure that we can get it so it continues to support the game in a good manner. This was mainly because like, I'm incorporating spells from Deep Magic. I'm including all the subclasses from two different books that I'd never really read through. So I didn't know all of the things that they were going to have. And in some circumstances, it was making sure that the, the ability worked in a way that was better. So we had a character that was using a subclass from Midgard Heroes that was kind of weak. And we said, you know, just to make it a little stronger make it more supportive of like the other subclasses that exist or at least equal to the other subclasses what if we just made this a bonus action instead of an action and it fixed a lot so i think you sh now that we're bringing in material from all of these different places we need to be more comfortable going ahead and making changes to them to support our game and what we're doing with it and in that case we can really think of like 5e as a general toolkit and we're bringing all this material from our toolkit to build our version of 5e that works well for our game and we need to be more comfortable doing that with us and our players both working with them to make stuff stronger if it's weak or making stuff a little bit weaker if it's disruptive to the game itself so mark i hope that helps Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in RPGs. If you enjoyed this show, you can get more stuff like this by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It is absolutely free to sign up. You get a free Adventure Generator PDF sent directly to your email inbox, as well as a weekly RPG email as well. You can also support me directly on Patreon. You get access to the Patreon Q&A, the Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, the City of Arches Sourcebook, and a whole bunch of other exclusive material. It's very cheap to subscribe, and it helps me put on shows like this. And you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Companion, and The Lazy DM's Workbook at the Sly Flourish Bookstore. Links for all of those are in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day, and get out there and play an RPG.